Okay, so now it's my turn to give a, a, a bit of a reflection on, on the theme of today. Why do I meditate? And, you know, when I think about that question, what, what comes to mind uh, immediately is, you know, I'm meditating so I can, you know, I find out who I really am. And, you know, what this is all about, this mind-body. And, and in the beginning, you know, of, of uh, when we start to learn about meditation, we, uh, the beginning is always about, you know, bringing the mind and the body together and learning to focus the mind onto a particular object, you know. We have been using the body breathing or the breath itself. And there in the Pali Canon, there's about like 40 different objects. And in the different schools of Buddhism, you know, there's even more than that. So there's many, many different objects we can use, but they all have one function. They all aim at uh, anchoring the mind in the present moment. And... Uh, taking the mind out from always going into the patterns the mind has developed over many, many years and maybe lifetimes of conditioning. They are often compared, you know, with like uh, different um, images. Like, for example, if it's just a, a rather light habit, it's like, you know, taking your finger and going through sand. And then when the water goes over it, after one, two waves, it's gone. But a stronger habit can be compared, you know, with a groove chiseled in rock. You know, even the water goes over it, it just stays. So we have different combinations of, of habits depending on our, our character, on our, you know, early childhood scenario, on our karma, quote unquote, you know, basically. And that's what makes us so different. But they're all, you know, they all have uh, certain laws, you know, which, which we all share. They're the same for all of us. And that means, you know, that those patterns, they have been cultivated over a certain amount of time. And we can, uh, you know, uh, through skillful attention, we can uh, recondition ourselves. You know, we can... We can uh, let go of unskillful habits and we can cultivate skillful habits through paying attention. And that's why, you know, in the beginning of our career, basically as a meditator, we, we first, you know, are instructed to calm the mind by having a, a, a good posture, either on the floor or on the chair, and then you know, bringing the mind and the body together because the mind has a tendency to be always all over the place, you know, thinking about the future, thinking about the past and thinking about what you want or what you don't want. And I'm sure you have noticed. So, you know, so we, we choose a simple object so we can anchor the mind in the present moment. Like, for example, you know, if you have a little, a little toddler and it runs all over the house and wants to go into every cupboard and everywhere wants to look, look. You give it a few interesting toys and it most likely will stay at least for some time with those toys. 
And that's what we do with the mind. We give it a, a toy in form of, it's not very flamboyant toy, it's only the mm -hmm. brass or, but it's actually very important if you really, you know, think about it. So give it the brass or give it the body breathing or any of the other objects, you know, the body walking is another one or, you know, some schools have a mantras or visualizations like Ajahnana Bodhi said or looking at a candle flame or contemplating the qualities of the Buddha. There's countless different objects, you know, we can use, but they all have the same function, you know, to keep the mind in the present and, you know, to notice when it's wandering off from it, when it's just got lost again in the kitchen cupboards or somewhere. Then, as soon as you notice it, you bring it back. And again, you know, hold, hold it to the breath or hold it to the body breathing. And, and through that, uh, two things happen through that. Number one is that the mind calms down and the body calms down as well. And the second is, you know, that you slowly but surely get to know your escape routes. You know, you get to know your preferred themes of attachment, your preferred themes, you know, of uh, fear or ill will, you, you basically over the years you, you get to know yourself and and through getting to know yourself you know you're getting uh, you know less and less fascinated with the storylines because you, you'll notice after a few years the latest you notice it's always the same stories and they <coughs> they start to lose their fascination and we start to, you know, have increasingly more and more the capacity to step back and look at the structure of that whole process, you know, being a human being, having a, a body and a mind and how that all works. And, you know, that's a very important point in the practice when we, you know, we have a certain amount of fed upness with the stories and we have more capacity, you know, to stand back and look and we start to discern the structure of how the mind works. And we start to see, you know, certain laws of nature which are very impersonal and which are the <coughs> same for all of us. And the first one, you know, which, which people recognize and also the Buddha himself has recognized, the first one, the easiest one to see is the law of impermanence. That's, you know, when the Buddha saw that through you know, witnessing old age, sickness and death, that, you know, was for him like an impetus, you know, to, to try to find a teacher and to leave behind, you know, certain ways he has been living before. And he felt like a sense of urgency because he thought, oh, it's not happening only to other people, it's happening to me too. I'd like to understand more about this. And so that is the first, you know, characteristic of life, which, which kind of stands out, law of impermanence. And then we also, we start to, you know, through the body and mind coming down to a certain extent, we start to recognize actually this body and this mind, they are not two things, you know, stuck together, like the head stuck on top of the body. No, there are two processes actually, and the karma that system becomes, you know, the less you can say, you know, where, where does the body 
start and where does it end and where does the mind start and end? It turns out it's all a process, like a river. And through, through that, um, you know, then this is an understanding which dawns on us, like I said before, like the sun rising in the morning. You know, it, it's through, it's not necessary to think about it a lot, but to just fully pay attention to within your own body and mind. And then through this listening inside, you know, the truth starts to become apparent. It's an intuitive knowing, you know, which, which becomes part of our being. And then, you know, we, we uh, can carry this with us into our daily lives. And it has an effect because, you know, if we have seen this uh, law of impermanence to a certain depth, you know, it, it does have an effect on how we live our lives. And this is exactly, I think, where we're all here. Because, you know, we have recognized, you know, that life is beyond our control in many ways. And if we don't have the ability, you know, to go with the flow of life, we, we, we tend to suffer a lot, you know. And I think that's why we are here, because we like to live more skillfully and to be more in tune with the way things are. And that's, you know, why we meditate to really understand life from within our own experience and, and through that living in a more skillful way and you know being able to have more space around the experience and through that you know clearing out can happen your know, memories start to bubble up you know and pains in the body come up and we just you know attend to it as good as we can with awareness and allow a healing to occur and a clearing out, like Ajahnana Bodhi said before, you know, it's like you, like spring cleaning or weekly cleaning, daily cleaning of your inner household, basically. And, you know, and this is like a, a process which is kind of slightly different for everybody depending on, on what you have accumulated, but in terms of structure, it's the same for everybody, you know. There's pains starting to come up in the body and memories from very early childhood sometimes. Things, you know, you, you're surprised that, that they are still locked into the body somehow. And, and that's like a healing process, a purification process, you know, a lightening up, like putting down the luggage, you know, and letting it go once we are ready for it. You know, it's not about a pushing away or a kind of cutting off or anything like that. It's more like, you know, through looking really deeply, things drop away by themselves in their own time. And that, you know, this is, can, can be a quite surprising process sometimes because it's, it's not necessarily a logical process, you know. And it, it requires like a certain amount of, of, of dedication and, and trusting and, uh, you know, a willingness to, to, to re be, be really um, attending to what's, what's coming up and, and you know, having, having uh, courage and uh, perseverance really by just attending to whatever needs, you know, needs our attention right now. And sometimes it's very boring, sometimes it's very sad, 
sometimes full of desire, whatever, you know. But we, we just keep on going. It doesn't really matter what it is, because we know for sure it's impermanent. Every emotion, every thought, every feeling has, has a beginning, a middle and an end. And if, you know, if that we have seen that clear enough, then we have increasing capacity to just be with what is arising. Or, you know, if, if we feel very happy, very blissful, we have the capacity not to get carried away with it too much, but just, you know, enjoying what's arising in the present. And when it's ceasing, when it's going, just let it go. And then, you know, through this uh, process of, of uh, you know, observing the body and the mind, what it is doing, we, uh, we get to know ourselves. And at the same time, you know, we, we also get to know that in reality, this is not what we really are, because this is a constantly changing process and it doesn't have any unchanging, anything to it. All of those, you know, feelings, bodily sensations, thoughts and emotions, none of them are permanent. They're all constantly changing. So it starts to dawn on us that most likely, you know, this, what we have thought, what we are, you know, this body and this thinking mind, we start to understand more and more this is not what we really are. And you know, we more and more turn towards that which knows what is arising and ceasing. So after, you know, observing the body and the mind for a certain amount of time, our focus starts to turn towards that which knows the arisings and ceasings. So we start to become conscious of awareness itself. And this is really, you know, the second, you know, really important part of the meditation, once we have been able to, to step back from the constantly changing um, body and mind, body and thinking mind, we, we have more and more capacity, you know, to let that just do what it does and rest in awareness itself. And You know, through this process, we, we become very familiar with our own patterns. And, and through this familiarity, we, you know, we develop compassion with ourselves. And through getting to know ourselves, we also have more compassion also with others. Because, you know, you know how your own inner world is pretty kind of probably as strange as mine. And, and then, you know, you, you can have more compassion also with people around yourself because you can see, you know, we all have our share of afflictive emotions and it's sometimes they are, can be very powerful. And on the other hand, you know, we can also trust that we can use the afflictive emotions and what they, you know, throw up for us. We can use them as, as fuel for our practice because they can be transformed into wisdom. Because essentially, you know, they are they're carrying a certain amount of information, but they also carry a lot of 
strong energy. So, you know, how can we distill the information out of the emotion, but at the same time not get, getting carried away by it? So, you know, whatever is happening within the body and the mind, we can, all of it, we, we can use it uh, for practice, we can use it to develop wisdom and to develop compassion. And it becomes very clear to us, you know, that not only, you know, do we experience the world around us through our mind, so we look at the world through our mind, but we can also, you know, just look into our mind. It's, you know, we, we can compare, the Buddha compares it also, you know, with, with, a, with water. For example, in the, you know, in, in ancient times, people used uh, a bowl of water as a mirror, you know, to just see their face. And they didn't have mirrors yet, so. So you can, you know, for example, thinking about a, a lake or something which is a, a very clear mountain lake, which is, you know, on a wind, on a day when there is no wind at all, we can very clearly, you know, see the reflection of the landscape around the lake in the surface of the lake, and we can also see at the bottom of the lake, and we can see what's in there, you know, the stones and the fish and everything. So, you know, we can really deeply look and see what is there. But as soon as if there's a strong wind or something and there's lots of little waves on the surface, we, we, we can't see the reflection and we can't see at the bottom of the lake. So that's, you know, when the afflictive emotions are active, we don't see what is there with clarity. We just see, you know, our story. And therefore it's very important, you know, to uh, get to know how we are, you know, tr distorting what's going on through the afflictive emotions when they are activated and to, through causes and conditions. And the meditation is exactly, you know, giving us that uh, power really to calm the mind down by just paying attention to what's happening in the present moment and then really looking deeply and discerning, you know, what's, what's going on. And, you know, developing a, a strong faith in a practice through experience rather than just, you know, believing it because somebody has written it down or, or somebody you know, tries to convince you that this is how it works. It has to be really brought home within yourself. And, you know, through repetition and through perseverance, it, it, it reveals itself. It's a process, you know, which we don't have to actually push much or, you know, make it happen. It's just our that devotion and, and paying attention is enough. It, it's then unraveling, you know, like a, a flower. When the sun shines on the flower, you don't have to worry. It's going to blossom, you know, if everything is there, the water, the sunshine and earth and everything. Same here, you know, with the meditation, with the mind. If you pay attention in the, in the right way, it's going to reveal itself to you. You, you don't have to make it happen. And as I said before, you know, whatever is happening in life, we can use it all as a, as a fuel for, for the practice. There's nothing, you know, which doesn't fit into awareness.
So everything can be observed and uh, can be held in awareness. And a lady before has brought me this, this little note and I also want to respond to that. She was asking about, you know, generosity and not asking anything in return. And actually that fits quite well, you know, because the, the, the path, as the Buddha has laid it out, in terms of the uh, qualities, you know, which, are, which, he, which, which he suggests us to develop, it starts actually with, uh, it starts with, with ethics, with, with, you know, keeping the five precepts in, uh, according to the Buddha, and also generosity, giving, you know, those two are the, are, the basic, are the foundations of the path. So in the beginning, if this has to kind of, you know, we have to investigate and uh, really see for ourselves how important it is to, to live according, according the, the way, you know, how, how we, we would like to be treated by other people, that we live in the same way in the world and uh, and generosity the buddha suggests you know in the beginning of the practice to to just train one's own mind by practicing generosity by just giving away things for example and through that you know training letting go basically and you know the buddha says that in the beginning if our meditation practice is not so developed yet, we can, for example, support it through, through giving first away, giving things, and then later on, giving away views. And, it's, it's uh, the first two of the ten parameters in, in, in the teaching of the Buddha. The ten parameters are the, in the what are they? Oh, the ten perfections, exactly. Yes, so the first one is Sila Parami and, and Dana Parami. And in the meditation, you know, the, we can practice Dana Parami also by, by letting go of uh, our preferred, you know, views about things. And by giving away, you know, um, certain emotions and by, by just stepping out into a bigger space and just bearing with that, that with the feelings it brings up. And you know coming back again and again to our object of meditation at the same time, you know, feeling how it feels if we are not trying, you know, to, to find security in our, our preferred patterns of, of daydreaming and thinking and fantasizing. And I'm sure, you know, you have experienced that yourself in a meditation. You know, it is, it is uh, sometimes not easy to just, you know, be with a very simple object, receive whatever is coming up in the body and in the mind. But if you you know, reflect on that as a, as a way to practice generosity that can support our, with what is arising.
we can see it as a as generosity, something which we, an ability you know, which we are training ourselves in so we can share it with others in our lives. Would you like to say something about generosity or so? Mm -hmm. About that? Well, I think Ajahn Sadhuji just touched on the, the really important aspects of generosity. And it's something, I think, um, it can be, people can overlook the importance of, of generosity and just think it's like, oh yeah, it's, that, it's kind of a nice thing to do. And, and, and it can be like a, a, almost like a secondary thing. You know, you, you, you've got a lot and you give a little bit and then you feel, okay, I'm being generous. But it, it is really, um, the, the whole path, <laughs> the whole path to liberation is a, is a path of generosity because it's continuously relinquishing it's, it's, a, it's a giving up of, of one's of oneself, actually, <laughs> of one's perception of oneself and of one's desires and fears and and perceived limitations. It's, it's, a, it's a constant act of, of giving up, and uh, and we can start to see as we practice the more the more we try to defend ourselves, justify, protect, then the more kind of miserable our life gets the more separate we feel and the more we can relinquish our um, having it my way you know there's, there's actually even though in the process it, it's it's challenging you know, what what comes from that is a greater freedom so it's kind of nice that that uh, you were speaking about this just as uh, because it's something that's very very conscious for myself at the moment in, in my life of, you know, I meet these edges and I'm like, no, I don't want to go there. I don't want to, I don't want to have to give that up, you know. And then I know if I hold on to it, then I, I remain perpetually limited by that, by that, um, whatever it is, that, that, I'm not sure Comfort whatever. zone, maybe? Maybe comfort zone, something, maybe comfort zone. It sounds like, it's, it doesn't exactly feel like it's comfortable actually in the first place, but <laughs> It's, there's a feeling of like no, if I don't want to, I don't want to get part. I don't want to give up that. And then I know, in because I have a bigger, a bigger intention, a bigger wish than just me and what me and what I want, because there's some bigger context. And I know that if I just hold on to the me and what I want, I'm going to continuously be meeting this edge of suffering and, and frustration. So then, to, to consciously keep going and open when you want to close down. You know, let the heart open to the feeling when it wants to close, and listen to another person when you when you want to actually just have some time on your own. You know, so it's it's like a conscious practice, and and part of that practice, it, it certainly does feel like an act of generosity and, and relinquishment. So, you know, one has to be discerning because, of course, it's not about being a doormat and just being open to everybody and available to everybody. That's not the that is not a wise approach, but it's about having a a, a, a big vision, you know, having a, like a or not necessarily a big vision, but having a, a sense of you know what is my life for, what is the purpose of my life, and how do I want to use this life, and then aspiring and and working towards that, and uh, you know there's there's the way our life is, and then there's there's, there's what we aspire to, which is normally kind of further on than where we are. And in order to get from here to what we aspire to, it takes, uh, it takes acts of generosity and 
renunciation and courage. So, you know, I was talking before about how you know, we, we all have such a great potential and, you know, we live, we live different degrees of that. But for the whole of our life, we can, we can keep moving towards our, our potential and that, that means we keep having to let go of who we were and what we, what we thought we were, what we what thought we wanted or thought our limitations were and, and take another step so that we keep stepping into, into a greater picture. And I think it's also really important like, um, to be aware of the, uh, the different situations people have in life. So, you know, this gentleman earlier on was speaking about growing up in Marin, you know, it's a very privileged situation. You know, great, great good fortune actually to be, to be born in this, this place and to be able to, or even just to be able to live here in this kind of rather wonderful part of the world. And, uh, you know, to have enough to eat, a place to live, and you know, incredible wealth of Dhamma around, you know, incredible wealth of Dhamma communities in this area, in the Bay Area, amazing. Not like anywhere else I know of, I've ever heard of, it's quite extraordinary. Maybe in Asia, maybe. Maybe in Asia, yeah, maybe in Asia, yeah. yeah. But in the Western world, this is quite remarkable. And so to be in, in, a, in a context like this, it's, it's great good fortune, you know. And then to see, well, what can I do with this? great good fortune that I have. <laughs> you know, how can I be best make use of it? And you know, there's the, there's the acts of generosity in terms of in relationship with each other. You know, not just getting, get, getting my way, but, but giving. And also in, in work situations, you know, not just doing just what I'm, you know, I do my bit and then I clock off, but doing that extra, making that bit, that bit better for the next person or for the other people we work with. And there's also the generosity of, you know, of recognizing that people in <coughs> other parts of the world who, who actually don't have the basics for life, you know, they are also like our brothers and sisters. And to, to have that, that breadth of view where we can, you know, think of, one well, doesn't even have to be in other parts of the world actually, also in America. People who, who actually don't have anywhere to live and don't have enough to eat. You know, that we can think of those people and also, okay, these are my brothers and sisters. How can I also benefit them? You know, is there a way that I can also benefit them? So, you know, there's, there are many ways. There are many, many volunteer opportunities and many charities and so on. So there are many ways that one can. But just to, you know, what, whatever you, you you choose to pick up to really meet it with with heart, you know, not not just to kind of relieve your conscience and send a little bit off, you know, a small percentage of your, of your wages once a month or something, but to really, even if even if you're doing that, to, to do it really consciously as an act of generosity and, and love for others. So I, I'm kind of continuously plugging <laughs> Buddhist Global Relief. It's a, it's a a, chari a Buddhist one of the few actually Buddhist charities. And uh, just even even though what the work that Buddhist Global Relief does is a tiny drop in the ocean for, of, of suffering, you know, of struggle for many people, it, it actually makes a difference to individual people's lives. 
So, you know, sometimes when I look at the whole picture, the whole situation in the world, you think, oh, it's just all so hopeless, and how can you even begin? But then you just begin by, by doing what you can. You know, do, do what you can. So I think, you know, generosity is, is pretty central to the, to the path. And it can be, you know, we can find, we can be creative, we can find many ways in which to manifest generosity in the world. Bring greater freedom to ourselves and others. I think we can take like another two, three questions. If anybody has a question, do you have the microphone again? Thank you. <coughs> Lady down the back. I was listening to a Dharma talk once um, on a tape or something, and the teacher said that the Buddha said, never ask for anything in return. And I realized that that's where I get stuck, that somehow, somewhere, it will come back to me. You know, there'll be... Uh, I'll get something in return, somehow, somewhere. And uh, many of us are in positions where we spend a lot of time taking care of someone in our life. There is no way that that could ever be returned <coughs> by that person. But what, where I get stuck is just letting go, completely letting go. It doesn't matter. It doesn't matter whether I ever <laughs> get it back, but somehow I am very stuck there. And I wish the person, whoever it was, had said more about what the Buddha, uh, what the context actually was. Because I get the part about generosity. Part that's difficult is that somehow it's never coming back. Except, you know what I mean in the mm -hmm. broader sense, but it, it's just a place that's stuck. Well, I, I think, you know, it's not, it's not true that it is not going to come back, because it does come back to you, but, you know, but not in a linear fashion, you know, I give this to you and then you have to give it back. <coughs> it comes back to you in another way, you know, from other sources. And at a time, we don't know when the time will be. So, you know, but because every action, you know, which is done with an intention will bear fruit at one point. And also, you know, to also have, have, have understanding and compassion with yourself, you know, that you, you want something. This can, that you have a, a wish and an expectation that you receive something back. This is just part and parcel of, of being you or being me or being a human being, you know. I think it must be a very highly evolved human being, you know, not to expect anything in return. You know what I mean? So don't, ex you know, don't be too hard on yourself and just let it be, but don't necessarily, you know, act on that. And, and just give it the space it needs and, 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 and observe it as just, you know, it's, it's, con it's conditioning which is uh, operating. And just give it the space to do, to do its thing. Does that make some sense to you? Because, you know, it's not about, 
for example, you know, practicing practicing generosity or practicing ethics. That doesn't mean you know that I always feel wonderfully uh, generous necessary when I give something. It can sometimes be you know that even I feel like oh god I don't want to give that away and I give it still away, you know, or that sometimes I feel like you know I just would like to you know say something really uh, strong to somebody. And then I, I just managed by the breadth of a hair not to say it, you know. <laughs> but it's still good enough, you know. It doesn't matter, you know. It's 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 uh, it's it isn't how you you know. It isn't about how you feel inside. It's just about you know the, the your intention behind your action. You know, if you really wanna take care and and give something of yourself. And if there's also this voice inside, you know, who, which would like to have something back, just, you know, be, share that uh, generosity with that as well. And it will, you know, if you give it the space and if you let it just be there, it might, you know, drop away at one point. We just don't know when that will be. Yeah, please. Yeah. I also, I think that uh, I, I've never actually come across that in in, this, in the scriptures that that uh, quote. So I think it, it might actually be a misquote of the Buddha because he actually does say there is benefit from giving. He 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 directly says it. There is benefit from from giving to others. One gains a bit, one receives benefit. So I, you know, that's a very high ideal, but I'm not sure that it's um, it's actually written anywhere in the Buddha's teachings. As such, and also, you know, he speaks about, isn't it? He speaks about, for example, you know, there are certain suttas where he speaks about, uh, you know, how somebody who has died, they were reborn according to their karma in this or that situation, and then he would say, you know, somebody mm -hmm. very generous was reborn as a very rich person, or things like that, mm -hmm. you know. So there's obviously, you know, there's this is just laws of nature working. It's not a, a judgment, you know, on somebody. But it's just like laws of nature working, and if one knows them and understands them, one can live accordingly. You know. So this is why in Asia, you know, if people if people have are in financial difficulties, they go and give a lot of dana because then they think that you know it's going to come back to them. And here in the West, they just you know this is the opposite kind of you know. Analysis can um, help your spiritual practice and meditation, and how? Psychoanalysis. Well, I'd say, you know, the, the meditation practice does, does a lot of clearing out, but there are places where that it can't, that it can't meet. So we do, you know, even, even very highly realized practitioners have blind spots, and they, they bump into these places. So. I mean, I don't know about psychoanalysis as such exactly, but it forms of, of uh, yeah, psychotherapy. Yeah. Um, I think psychoanalysis is, is, I'm not sure about that, but, it, but psychotherapy where, where you're, you're coming into direct contact with places that you, you actually cannot meet without somebody helping you is, is very good. Yeah. I think in, you know, in, in like Buddhist countries where there's, there's a whole culture and there are, there are you know, highly developed um, practitioners, monks or nuns, they can guide people in, in ways that, you know, in our culture we don't, ha we, we haven't got there yet, you know, we, haven't ha we don't have enough generations to do that, so fortunately we have psychotherapists. Yeah. 
<laughs> but it, but uh, you know, it's it's it, they work together. Not not that uh, you know. You, you can. It's about meeting the places that you can't see. Yeah. And having someone to help hold them with compassion, as you as you consciously go through that process. And I think the meditation practice gives you the strength of awareness to go through pretty much anything. So they, they really work very beautifully together. Yeah. And also, you know, because some of the very deep wounding, you know, was it happened in relationship. You know, when we were very small children, so the healing of very deep wounding can only happen in relationship, for that we need somebody, you know, to, to listen and to hear with compassion, you know, what we're experiencing. Not everything can be done on the cushion, no. Yeah. This is, you know, what people believed in the beginning, you know, when meditation came to the West, they were thinking this is the quick fix for everything, you know. But now after 30, 40 years and enough kind of candles and things have happened, you know. Now we know it's not enough, you know. Yeah. Um, my experience with generosity is if I, I want appreciation for my generosity. Um, and if I offer it and it's not appreciated, I'm, I'm thinking more in terms of raising children, you know, because often... <laughs> <laughs> I'm not, that's a lot of suffering. <laughs> and um, so, because I'm raising for the fourth time a teenager, um, I'm learning that um, to expect appreciation is folly. <laughs> And that as long as I hold on to that and want that, I suffer. I suffer so much. And, and it generates not just suffering, but a lot of anger and a lot of ill will and, and all of that yucky stuff that I punish myself for having those thoughts and feelings about. <coughs> so I just wanted to offer that up. Um, Letting go of the need to be appreciated is something that I'm working on in my practice. And the more I'm able to let go of that, it seems that things change, the dynamic with mm -hmm. the team changes. You know, I find that when you give up completely wanting appreciation, people might, they might start appreciating you more. I think so. <laughs> I, I don't say that as a final <laughs> thing because it it's varies from day to day. But also something you said earlier, um, I recently read a book, reading a book called Your Teen is Crazy. And it, it truly <laughs> helps me to understand because now with the um, research in neurodynamics and all of that, neuro psychology or the development of the brain, that a lot of the team behavior is is not their fault. <laughs> their brains just aren't developed enough to um, to explain their behaviors in logical, rational ways, and and so it's helped me let go of a lot of that uh, judgment about how my generosity is being uh, rewarded. <laughs> Behind you is someone. 
I'm really appreciating that we're that you're talking about generosity, um, and I I speak a, as somebody who I, I don't think of myself as necessarily ungenerous, but I definitely have um, you know the circle of things that it's just so hard to share or, or let go of, and one of the things I've been really kind of contemplating lately is just how the things that I feel like belong to me actually aren't mine in the sense that you know this planet is just kind of giving forth resources and it's really for all of the beings that live here and because of the luck of my birth and the the unequal distribution of wealth and all of those sorts of things I happen to have a lot but it there's a way in which it doesn't really belong to me so it's not so much about being generous it's just about sharing Mm-hmm. what I have um, maybe an unfair portion of. And I, and, I'm, and I don't mean to say that in a way that's um, you know, punitive or finger-wagging, but just it, it really opens up the whole thing. It's not about there's a flow of energy and I'm part of that flow and we just kind of need to keep the flow happening and that's what keeps balance. Um. <laughs> you were talking about uh, turning attention toward awareness. Mm-hmm. Can, can you just talk a little bit more about that? Like yeah. So, you know, awareness is, you know, if there wouldn't be awareness, we wouldn't be able to, you know, be mindful of the breath or mindful of the body breathing or, you know, hearing or nothing. We wouldn't be aware of anything. So, you know, turning, um, becoming conscious of awareness is, is just, you know, uh, for example, if you listen to the silence in this room right now, the mind you know, opens up and what there is is awareness and within this awareness, different sounds, thoughts and sensations are arising and, and ceasing. And you know, and once we have investigated the body and mind process long enough, you know, the, the, our attention turns toward awareness itself, the true nature of the mind. And then, you know, we have this increasing ability to just rest in awareness and let whatever is arising float through like a cloud through the sky, you know, not leaving a trace behind. And then sometimes, you know, we, we become aware that we are, you know, contracting around one of those clouds because it's especially interesting cloud or especially scary one or especially exciting one. And then as soon as we notice it, we just let go and come again, come back to resting in awareness. Does that make sense to you? starting to be interesting to me. Yes. Mm-hmm. So, you know, we are, we are becoming aware of that which knows all of the mind objects, you know. So the four, as Ajahn Bodhi spoke before about, she spoke about, you know, the four foundations of mindfulness. She spoke about body, feeling, mind, and mind objects. And all of those four foundations of mindfulness, they all arise and cease within awareness. Or mindfulness and awareness is this, you know, is interchangeable. This word is the same. 
it's essentially the same, just different uh, angle on it, basically. So you know, you, you can if you if you you can compare those the four foundations, all of those objects which are rising within the four foundations of mindfulness are like the clouds, you know, moving through the sky, and the sky is awareness itself. It is limitless. It is constantly uh, there, you know, and even sometimes it's, it's completely covered over by clouds and you can't see the sky. It's only clouds, but behind the clouds the sky is always there. And when the clouds are gone, the sky is there and there's no taints or any, any the, clouds, the, the sky is not tainted by the clouds. This is, and, and awareness is, is just this uh, ability to know what, what is arising and ceasing within awareness. And it has, you know, it, it, it's a clarity, an openness, and, and uh, a sensitivity, you know, f for knowing what is, what is happening in the present moment. It's that which knows, basically. Mind, you know, you can also say mind, you know, that the thinking mind is, is one of the six senses according to the Buddha's teaching. You know, the sense, the hearing, the smelling, the seeing, the tasting, the touching, and the thinking. This is the six senses. But then there's awareness which knows what's going on within those six senses. But that's not consciousness either. I mean, you know, it is different. You know, it's different words. We, we just call it awareness or mindfulness. But you can also you can call it consciousness if you want. You know, but the best thing is to just experience it by just now, you know, sitting and listening to the silence in this room, which is behind all sounds. That gives you a taste, you know. This is like a pointer. Because we, we can't really fully describe what it is because it's beyond the, the dualistic thinking mind. But we can we can tap into it, you know. And for example, listening to the silence is a skillful means, you know. It's a pointer. You can follow that and then you know for yourself what I'm, what I'm speaking about. So you can just now, you know, close your eyes and listen to the silence behind the sounds. And what you probably notice is that your mind just opens up wide. At the moment you're listening, to, you try, you know, you listen to the silence in the, behind the sounds. The mind opens up very wide. It can't at the same time think about some little thing. And that gives you a taste. You know, this is a taste of awareness. And then the mind gets sucked into some thinking. You know, thinking, oh, soon I have to go and go back. It's soon over or whatever. You know, how my car and this and that, my, my plate, <laughs> don't forget my plate. <laughs> <laughs> and then suddenly the mind contracts again, you know, about something, about me and mine, you know, my fears and my hopes. And then as soon as you again listen to the silence behind the sounds, like that. And then I can still hear the bird, you know, but I'm not scared about the bird or I don't want anything from the bird, so I'm not going to latch onto it, you know. I can just rest in awareness and have the bird coming through like the cloud, you know. 
But if somebody would take my plate, it would be something else, you know? Like, no, 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 this is my plate, leave it here, something in them. It's like that again, you know? <laughs> you know, it's very difficult to speak about it because you can't really uh, grasp it with a dualistic thinking mind. This is the mind with the small m, one of the six senses, you know? But we can, you know, we can uh, use skillful means like pointing out instructions to give us a, a taste of it, you know, and then you know for yourself, and then you can come back to it again and again, and, and this, how we, this is how we train ourselves, you know, because it's an acquired taste, because if it's not pointed out to us, we don't even know it, it's there, even it's in the front of our nose like this, all the time with us, you know, 24 hours a day, but if not somebody tells us, we don't know it. But once we have tasted it once, we we can come back to it again and again and again and again, and then this ability, you know, to rest in awareness will increase, you know, through the purification, through clearing out of the stuff, you know, clearing out of our attachments and our desires and all of this, you know, we have an increasing ability to rest in this open awareness. And the day comes, you know, we don't mind if somebody takes our plate or things like that, you know. And then there's not so much concern because we know if this plate goes, another one will come and we trust that. And, you know, just knowing that everything is as it is because that's you know, how it's supposed to be right now. I think it was Ajahn Chah, one of his, you know, more funny sayings was, if it shouldn't, it wouldn't, you know, basically. Yeah. I think it's a good one, you know, to reflect, to reflect on from time to time. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.